Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, space cadets, and welcome to another cracking tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. It's the podcast with everything you need to know about the latest in AI, QR, EVs, and G A D G E T R Y. Here is the man with all the know how and the how to. It's Matthew Dickerson. How are you doing this week, Matt? So that was. Gadgetry? It is gadgetry, oh, yes. Well got done. Right. I was going a bit quick with that. <laughs> uh, well done. So this week, I've got a bit of a sad story to tell. We haven't actually da- done many stories lately on hacking or incidents around hacking. Well, or that's people. not sad. That's good news. Well, yeah. that's good news. That's exactly right. But in this one, normally I'll do research around different incidents that have happened around the world and try and give people some warnings around them. This one actually happened to a friend of mine where suddenly on his Facebook account, he became an extremist, a terrorist, because you only had to look at the picture and straight away you knew that he was now involved in some extreme terrorism group or cell. And the first thought, of course, is, oh my gosh, what is this friend that I've known for all these years suddenly become? And then the next time you look at that Facebook account, it's shut down and you realise that he's been hacked. So he had been hacked, and it was interesting what the hackers did. What, what value does anyone get out of doing that? I have no idea. I've been trying to work out whether it's just... It just annoys me. It, well, and maybe that's it. Maybe they just Annoying wanted factor. to prove the point they could do it and annoy someone. Are there lots of personal details they could get? Yeah, possibly. They might steal your identity. There might be birth details, birth date, for example, mm. and your name. They might want to get. They might have different details, mobile phone number. You don't really have your address on your Facebook account. But again, with so many of these things, the problem is what you do afterwards. So the Facebook account's been hacked. That means that it's shut down. Notify Facebook, this isn't me, shut down. His Facebook account was linked to his Instagram account, so that's shut down. He's obviously made application to Facebook to say, please give me my accounts back. It wasn't really me being an extremist. It's just someone that hacked my account, and I'm a really nice guy. Can you please let me have it back? But it goes further than that. He's got a VR headset. His VR headset was one that you had to have a Facebook account to use. Oh, the Facebook account you used to create that account or to to log on to that VR headset is now no longer able to be used. So that VR headset effectively is bricked. It can't (sighs) operate. Even if he could get it operate maybe with another Facebook account, he'd bought hundreds of dollars worth of games on his Mm. Facebook account to use on that VR headset, which then with a different Facebook account, if he creates a new one, then they can't be used. So all of these issues, I don't know. They've told him that it might take up to 30 days to get his account back if he gets it back at all because, again, he might be a terrorist. And I'm not saying he is. Mm. (laughs) If this person's listening, I'm not saying you're a terrorist. (laughs) But obviously from Facebook's perspective, they're taking a very conservative approach. So they think they've got a terrorist. They shut down the account. That's all bad. So let's leave it like that. Now, obviously, if you really were a terrorist – then you'd be saying, oh, that wasn't me. That was someone else. Can you please give me my account back? So Facebook have got to be very (sighs) precautionary in their process there. So you're right. Why? It's annoying. It's frustrating. What are they hoping to get out of it? What value? I don't know the answer. All I can imagine is there's a 13-year-old kid with too much time on his hands sitting in some room somewhere having fun and games. Quite possible. And I did actually ask this person, said, so do you think you clicked on any links in the emails lately? Do you think you... Answered any phone calls where you suddenly gave away details? Did you have a strong password? And he thinks that everything he did was legitimate. I don't know that they would have used a brute force attack 
on this particular account, unless it was just a random brute force attack. Because I don't think there was anything in particular this person had of such great value that someone was going to target this particular individual. Well, I worry about links that I might have clicked on 15, 20 years ago mm. accidentally and whether or not someone's just held onto that information there quite, you know, quite happily, you know, and just let it stew for a little bit and then... Well, interestingly enough, he did say that about a month ago, maybe a bit longer than that ago, he received an email from Facebook, supposedly, that said someone's been trying to log into your account from this location, which wasn't a location that he recognised. If that's you, fine. If it's not you, then go to your Facebook account and update your details, change your password, for example. And I said, oh, no, did you click on a link in that email? I said, no, I was smart enough not to click on any link. So I went onto my Facebook account and I did change my password. So whether or not there was something in that, mm. whether there was some keylogger in that particular email he got, hard to say. But that was a little while ago. It wasn't as if it happened and the next day suddenly he's become an extremist or a terrorist. So how they got in, I don't know. Again, I haven't analysed it in great detail. But it happened out there. And when it does happen, it's bad, annoying, frustrating. And he might lose his Facebook account and his Instagram account. But if it is all about identity theft... It's a whole other mm. process. And the really good identity thieves, you may not know your identity has been stolen for a number of years because the really good identity thieves actually create children. And those children grow up and then they're adults. And then that's when that identity is stolen. Those people are registered to vote. They're, they're created from a young age, so they're in the system. So it's not as if that person suddenly appeared somewhere. Uh. They've been worked on for a number of years before finally they start to take advantage of that double identity that might be there. So it might not come to the fore for weeks, months, even years before that happens. Scary old world out there. This whole internet thing is Pandora's box. Absolutely right. And we're <laughs> seeing just the tip at the moment, I think. Goodness me. All right, we better get on with um, some stories here. On an occasion like the sad passing of Queen Elizabeth II, with all the planning that had occurred for the decades prior to, uh, to produce the royal funeral, we all knew this was going to be a very big and elaborate deal. But some facts still came to me as a bit of a surprise. It caught me uh, a bit when I found out that all the world leaders arrived in the ceremony in buses because it's easier to manage and protect a few buses than it would have been to uh, protect and, and manage an enormous procession of so many dignitaries' cars, each with their own security cavalcade leading and following them, of course. Except, of course, for Biden. Those Yanks don't compromise on anything. The funeral itself, though, it was supposed to be the most viewed event ever, which is remarkable. But did you also know that the plane carrying the royal casket from Edinburgh to London was the most tracked plane ever? Matt, in a fortnight of endless live telecasting, there was some riveting viewing in watching a dot move across a map, no doubt. It does seem crazy, doesn't it? And we've got no real comparison because it's been 70 years since a coffin has been carried from one place to another to be buried in this same way. Yeah. But flight radar... They didn't have the internet back then, did they? They probably didn't have a lot. They probably didn't track planes to quite the same level 70 years ago. But Flight Radar 24 is an incredibly useful app a great tool. You can see whether a friend's flight's on time. You can point it to the sky and see what planes are above you right at the moment. I actually love, I used to do it at conferences where I'd show people just how much traffic in terms of plane traffic, and I'm going mm. back pre-COVID here, would be in the air. And I'd just do a snapshot sometimes or a live shot of America, North America, in the middle of the day. And mm. it was just flooded with all these yeah. little planes going across there. You'd zoom right down and still you'd see so many planes just going everywhere. Wow. It's fascinating. But Flight Radar 24, 
sometimes has lots of people who want to follow a particular flight. Nancy Pelosi recently flew to a little Chinese province. Well, there's a bit of an argument whether it's a Chinese province or a breakaway province, but, <laughs> but flew there and people were really interested in that flight. This was a, a high-ranking American official going to Taiwan. There's a whole lot of Republicans tracking it, wasn't it? Well, who knows? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I haven't got that data, but you can probably make some guesses there. But 2.2 million people tracked that flight. Mm. And you think, it's not really that fascinating, but I suppose historic, whatever, that's fine. Flight Radar 24 knew that tracking the Queen's coffin in the air might be something that a few people wanted to watch. So they made sure they ramped up their server infrastructure. They gave themselves more resources to be able to track this. But even the experts at Flight Radar 24 could not have predicted the numbers that they were talking about. Within a few seconds of it being able to be tracked, they were up to about 600,000 users. It then got to the so point... So I think that's amazing. That 600,000 people right, want to watch this plane. But that it gets better. <laughs> 4.8 million people actually watched it on Flight Radar 24, oh, wow. but 6 million people tried to, but it just couldn't handle the amount of traffic. So, if, Sorry, another 6 million people were well, trying Well, no, it. I think it was 6 million total, so oh, okay. an, another right. 1.2. still that. So in <laughs> essence, if they had had the resources available, 6 million people would have watched the flight going from Edinburgh to Northolt. Now, I don't know, I'm not familiar with geography in England that well, but I don't imagine it's a very long flight. All I can imagine is these people got sick of watching the coverage on television, the the twenty four seven ad nauseum coverage of of updates on the death of the Queen. Like you know, she's still dead. Um, anyway, maybe I mean Princess Anne accompanied the coffin. Maybe people want to follow what yeah, Princess Anne was doing. Okay. The flights carrying the Queen are always called Kitty Hawk. So the, the flight was called officially, the call sign was Kitty Hawk for that. Nice little bit of trivia. Didn't know that, but probably not that relevant going forward now. They're not going to put the Queen on a plane again. But it is a, just an indication, isn't it, of just how far we've come. As you say, mm. seven years ago, not the internet, not tracking flights. We're tracking flights. We're tracking information. We want all this information, but why? Mm. <laughs> why did six million people need to it? see that coffin <laughs> and tracking that across the sky? Fascinating. <laughs> Look out Santa this Christmas. He'll have people tracking him all over the place. I don't have any data for that. Surely that would be tracked more. Or maybe those kids aren't allowed to watch on the internet because then they'll be waiting up for Santa to come along. Yeah. Just go to bed, kids. Just go to bed. That's right. The SARS-CoV-19 outbreak of the past two years brought out the best and the worst in people around the world. We all know that. The civilised frequently became uncivilised as technology fought to protect the population against the nanoscopic virus and from the people who would reject efforts to contain and manage it. The anxiety was quite palpable. Well, here's some tech to get the fake news alarmists wound up like a tightly coiled spring on the subject of advanced face masks. A new N5, uh, sorry, N95 face mask has been developed to detect coronavirus from the outside. Matt, I gather that we're spared lights and sirens here. But the old N95s, I thought they were doing a good job as they were. What's the real advantage of being able to detect whether the little blighter has landed on your face mask? Well, I think the idea here is that you can go into a room and wear your nice, tight-fitting N95 and feel like you're quite protected. And after 10 minutes in that room, if the sensor says, we haven't detected enough coronavirus in this room to be of any risk, then you can take the mask off. Or if okay. I'm... I'll give you that. I think that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Or okay. if I'm having a one-on-one conversation with you 
And after 10 minutes, the alarm goes off and says, hmm, there's some coronavirus nearby. And I look across the short conversation distance we've got and I go, well, I might just excuse myself from this conversation and go somewhere <laughs> else. So it gives you that ability to remove yourself from an environment where there might be some coronavirus or feel comfortable in an environment that you're walking around. And I almost think it's a bit Presumably not to say, hey, mate, you've got coronavirus. <laughs> right, probably not. Go and get yourself checked out. Yeah, and I feel it's two years too late. It would yeah. have been fantastic mm. to have this when everyone had to wear masks. Masks are no longer compulsory. The last flight I went on, I didn't even need to wear the mask on the flight. A couple of people still had it on mm. on the flight. That's their personal choice. But you don't have to have it anymore. And I thought that would have been another great example. On a flight, imagine an airline handing out these N95 masks to everyone that got on the flight. There you go. Everyone get on all wear them for the first 10 minutes of the flight and if no one sensor went off you'd say okay everyone it's safe on this flight we're up in a almost sealed environment you're getting air coming in from outside obviously mm. but you're not getting any other bacteria pathogens whatever coming in so we can take them off and we know we're safe if an alarm goes off somewhere everyone leave your mask on <laughs> i'm not pointing to which seat it is b17 <laughs> <laughs> everyone, don't talk to the guy with the beard <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but what's interesting about this from a more science perspective is how small an amount of coronavirus they've been able to use to pick up the actual existence or the presence of this. So they've been able to detect as little as 0.1 femtograms of protein per milliliter of fluid to get that. Now, I know you know what a femtogram is, but (laughs) for listeners out there, femtogram 10 to the minus 15. Yeah, wow. And 0.1 of those. So basically 0.15 zeros, 1 grams of protein. So that's pretty small. The other thing I thought would be relevant is that with this sensitivity, sure, they're talking about masks, but in my mind, there would be nothing to stop you having a sensor that you could build into something you could stick on a wall. So you're Hmm. at the gym, for example, you put some sensors in strategic locations and those sensors not linked to an app on your phone, but linked just to a a siren that goes, (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking something more subtle, but yeah, that'd do as well. (laughs) So you're in the gym, you're working out, the siren goes, who's got coronavirus? (laughs) And then everyone leaves and I don't know, you go away for an hour or something. But they're the sort of examples. I think you could have it in hospitals, in doctor Mm. surgeries, in anywhere. There's a buildup of people in airports, forget the plane in the airports themselves. Yeah. And and look, they're, the whole absence, I guess, yeah, the lack of detection is probably the comforting thing there. And for doctors who, yeah, um, I, I used to be frustrated if, if the doctor just wore his mask the whole consultation and really didn't, uh, yeah, it was, it was like a detachment. Yeah. But I know they're trying to protect themselves. And so I. I but, and that's the interesting part. If it's not an N95 mask, my general understanding is that me wearing the various masks that are out there, ones you're handed on while you get onto a plane, are not doing anything for me, mm. they're doing something for you. Mm. So the idea is if everyone's wearing them, we're all protecting each other. But yeah. some people have this misguided idea that, oh, I don't want to catch coronavirus, so I'll put a mask on. But they're not normally N95 masks they're wearing, so mm. they're not really doing much in terms of protecting themselves, again, unless everyone's doing it. But anyway, it's quite interesting. They're, the valve has got a thing called an aptamer in there, and that's a short strand of DNA or RNA, and that's basically designed to bind to those proteins which is why they can actually get such a small number of those proteins, the coronavirus proteins, to actually say, yes, you've got it there. So great breakthroughs there from a science perspective. And I think in this one, sometimes we talk about stuff that we can't see a practical application for. Mm. This one's got a very practical application. And while we're on the subject of practical applications, it's finally here, folks. That piece of tech that you've been dreaming about for so long, 
We now live in an age where we have face recognition technology for pigs. Hallelujah! <laughs> Matt, I honestly beg your pardon here, but this is a top-shelf obscure piece of tech right here. <laughs> face recognition for pigs. I had to say it twice to get it to sink in. Matt, who, what, why? Did you know that farmers give animals individualised food and individualised veterinary care? Pig farmers out there are very good to their pigs. Well, I imagine you have to be. But at the moment, the problem is you've got to identify your pigs. So you might have some sort of RFID tag in their ear. You've got to punch it through the ear. That probably stings a little bit when it goes there. Sometimes they do mark the ear, a bit like greyhounds. Greyhounds have got a serial number imprinted, if you like, tattooed into their ear. Maybe they don't like that too much. So researchers have been fixing the big problems in society. Rather than pigs having RFID tags so their individual care can be (laughs) assigned to them, they've now got cameras that they put in front of troughs. And as the pigs come along and eat, their face is directed with some little guiding components to actually be right in the right spot for that camera to get a picture of them and to recognise each of those pigs and individually. Doris there and it's not Gladys or whatever. Correct. That's <laughs> okay. exactly it. And with that information, then they can obviously automate a process to give them that individual food or individual veterinary care that they might need. It's not quite perfect at this stage. Oh, they haven't got it right yet. <laughs> 97%. Oh, right. 97% okay. is there. Well, hold on to your hats, folks. It's on its way. And maybe I'm being a little bit anti animal here, but. I think, from a human perspective, I can recognise other humans. I get a mm. James and I say, hello, Mary. So I've, I've reckon I've got that down pretty well pat. But when I see a bunch of pigs, I personally, and I'm apologising to any pigs out there listening. <laughs> I they personally, all look the same. Thank you. That's what I was thinking. They don't look a lot different, do they? But this camera is working on a few different little parts and they've been able to get that Accuracy up to 97%, which isn't as good as what you might get with an RFID tag. Obviously, that's 100%. You'd hope pretty much 100% Mm -hmm. anyway. So they're working on it. But even the cameras they're working on at the moment, they're only using a 64 by 64 pixel camera. So it's not as if it's a high-res camera. Maybe that accuracy will increase once they increase that resolution of the camera. Mm. But with what they've got at the moment, they're already at that point. So look forward to the next time you visit a pig farm that facial recognition for those pigs will be giving exactly what each pig needs before they get killed and turn into <laughs> And <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, today it's pigs, tomorrow it's chickens, and then... Chickens, that's interesting. There's llamas. A, there's a very small <laughs> surface area to work with with a chicken yeah. face, isn't there? One chicken looks the same to me. No, <laughs> they are definitely not the same, apparently. I'm sure they're all unique. I'm sure they're all beautiful in their own <laughs> special way. But I, yeah, horses, sure, I can see that. Just a larger area, a larger image to take. But chickens, yeah, mm. I haven't gone that far yet. We'll keep an eye out for that one. Keep coming. an eye out for that one, too. Now, the struggle to humanise robots is both alarming and intriguing. (laughs) That's good, James. (laughs) Oh, out of sync, sorry. (laughs) In fields where uh, human connections are important, we've built robots to look and move like people, even to respond to stimuli, constantly refining previous models to give them a feel of being more human than machine. We even give them touches of personality. But one challenge for software engineers is to build a sense of humour. Matt, my Google Home tells me jokes on requests, but programming the subtleties of laughter in a spontaneous response is a whole other challenge for AI tech, am I right? 
So I was trying to really connect with you then, but I got the laughter <laughs> wrong. I got it at the wrong spot. <laughs> and that's apparently a big thing. But but there's so many different types of laughs as well, as oh, we all know. That's right. And yeah. scientists have broken it down at this stage where they're focused on four different types of laughter. It might just be the bit of a groan. Normally, that's what I get when I tell dad jokes. They're normally a groan mm. response from my kids or any random person. Well, if a robot seen. groans at you, you're <laughs> allowed to punch it in the face, surely. <laughs> surely. <laughs> so you've got that groan. You might have a little snicker, maybe a bit of a bigger laugh, and then maybe a big belly laugh. So they're kind of the four they've broken it down into. And what they're trying to do is this is working towards the point when you do have a natural conversation with a robot or with a bit of technology, like you say, your Google Home or Amazon Alexa or whatever it might be. You're right. You can say, tell me a joke. And they usually are dad jokes, actually. Most yeah, they are. Of, always. Most of the jokes. Yeah. So tell me a joke. They tell you a joke. And you might laugh, but they don't laugh. And so I don't feel that connected with my Google Home device because mm. there's not that shared laughter. But if you could get to that shared laughter and then, more importantly, and this is what researchers are working on, get to the point where they laugh at my incredibly funny stuff because I am funny <laughs> and they don't realize it yet. But once that device starts laughing in the right place at my really funny stuff, more so than my kids, because my kids don't realise I'm funny, <laughs> but I want the technology to realise I'm funny, I will feel very connected with it. My brother-in-law keeps telling me, I know funny. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been training up. They've actually been using a humanoid robot, and they've actually had actors there behind the screen, like hidden away somewhere, and interacting with humans and just trying to work out if people feel more comfortable with some of these interactions and then training all that up, feeding all that into a huge database, getting AI to come along and just take all that and break it down. So again, there's someone sitting there having a conversation with a robot. As far as I know, it's a robot. But again, there's actors hidden away there. So they're laughing at different things. They're interacting. They're making it all seem like it's natural. And then hopefully with all that information, you'll be able to have that natural conversation with your Siri, Alexa, whatever you want. Robot. Yep, and that will just feel very comfortable. Now, don't get too excited. We can't buy this yet. The researchers themselves are saying it'll take 10 to 20 years before we can have a casual chat with a robot like we would a friend. Now, if a researcher says 10 to 20 years, I guarantee it's longer than that. I guarantee mm. it's 20 to 30 years maybe before we can have that natural conversation. But it'll get there. And do we want that? Do we care about that? It'll probably make us feel more comfortable with this other thing in our household, doing the dishes for us, doing the vacuuming. That we can have a conversation with. Yeah, I that think. That feels like a human conversation. That was the first thing I thought of is that I can imagine I would feel more comfortable with this other device in my home helping me out. But then I thought there's some people out there living by themselves. Hmm. They might be lonely. They might still like the idea of some robot help around the house, doing dishes, cooking food, whatever it might be. So, well, if you've got that, then maybe you can feel like you're less lonely and get some help around the home. So that mm. might all feel pretty good. That might be you and I in 20 or 30 years' time, James, when we're lonely and old and sitting around the house by ourselves and saying, let's have a conversation with this robot. Well, there have been um, some tests uh, that have been done previously in elderly homes, but also in uh, early childhood um, centres oh, yeah. as well with robotics um, and just uh, having kids attach themselves to a, a robot uh, with with a human sort of connection. Yeah. Although it's been a bit clunky right now because we're still, as you say, in the, the infancy of this. But uh. So the really interesting thing to, to work on here, and I haven't seen anything from these particular researchers about that, but defining what's funny. Yeah. If you try and break down what's funny, sometimes it is about ambiguity. Sometimes funny yeah. is 
leading someone uh, a garden path, so leading them in one direction, holding their hand, taking them along a little story, and then at the last minute, the punchline, if you like, is normally turning degree, turning ninety it's degrees. It's a surprise. It's a surprise. And that, that's that's right. where the humour lies, is in the surprise. That's right. And isn't that strange? I've never studied comedy. Maybe I should after this conversation. But it's it's that surprise. Why is that funny? I have no idea. Hmm. But how do you train a robot? How do you turn an algorithm into something that says, mm. oh, that person just went in a different direction. Does that mean they were confused or they got it wrong or they were making a joke? Yeah. I don't know. Let's go and work on that a bit further. So getting that subtlety. Yeah, wit is such a subtle thing. Oh, it is, isn't unless it? Unless you're watching an American sitcom. <laughs> then it's obvious because they say, here is the joke <laughs> now. Yeah. Please if laugh. If you didn't hear it, we're going to re-give it to you in a couple of seconds. And then we've got the canned <laughs> laughter to, to make sure you know that it's meant to be funny now. Apologies to those people who really love American sitcoms. Does anyone? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> anyway, that's interesting. I just I find that fascinating. And just the human brain is so clever mm. trying to program things to emulate the human brain. We can understand what we think is funny and what we laugh at and all those things, but how do we work that out? I don't know. We listen to our parents and our friends and comedians and all sorts of things for all these years and we've got all that. But how do you program that? That's, that's right. And, and I know that personally um, – over the years, my sense of humour has changed a lot. So things that I would have laughed at back in the 80s is very different to what I would have laughed at in the 90s and through the 2000 and, and the last decade as well. And um, and so I know that my, my own sense of humour has had some subtle nuance change to yeah, it. Yeah. So how do you program what's funny into a robot? It becomes very complex. Yeah, and I was actually – I went to a comedian recently and one thing that comedians do, which you pick up if you've been to a few comedy acts, is – the callback. So they'll tell a bit of a story at the beginning and they'll mm. have something that'll be a bit of a funny story or some jokes and then they'll go along through the show. But there will then be some references back to that so that sort of callback. I don't know if that's the right term, but it sounds good. Yeah. So that callback to that other thing. Now, you have to have heard that whole process for that to be funny and to make sense. Yeah. Whereas if a robot just hears that one little part in isolation – they are going to struggle to relate that back to some part of the conversation from 10 minutes ago. What about someone like Billy Connolly or Ross Noble who just riff? They just get sidetracked by their own <laughs> tangent of thought and just start saying stuff. Yeah. And it's really, really funny. I mean, I laugh about it just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, they must have some sort of routine, basis of a routine in their head. But uh, for a lot of comedians, they're now just riffing. That's right. And, um, and they are just going in different locations, different yeah, directions. Wherever. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's part of the, the humour. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. keep an eye out for that one in 10 or 20 years' time. I, I'm sure we'll see some examples of that online somewhere where you can play around with that. But it's a tough challenge. That's a really tough one. Under-20s and closed captions on videos with a big question mark at the end of that, well, statement, half a statement. As a teacher, they come, uh, well, closed captions become an important tool in terms of providing equity in the classroom, and students always tend to request them these days. But as a Gen Xer, for me personally, they tend to frustrate me because they interfere with the picture. <laughs> Matt, help me out here. Why have they become so popular for young people? Closed well, captions. I, I had a couple of my kids home from uni recently, and I said, oh, let's have a movie night, kids, just like when you were young, and we'd snuggle up on the couch, and I'd maybe buy an ice cream or something, and you'd all sit around and watch something on TV. And they wanted closed captions. There wasn't me. a choice. Oh. When I said, let's do it, we sat around, we watched, I don't know, half an hour of trailers before we finally picked a movie, because everyone had their different opinions about what we wanted to watch, 
And so we started watching the movie and one of the kids grabbed the remote, turned the subtitles on or the closed captions on. And I went, what are you doing? Oh, we watch everything with subtitles now. I went, why? <laughs> Is there something I should know about? Do I need to go and get your hearing checked? No, no. We can multitask or we can catch the language easier and all sorts of things there. So this is a big trend now. So when I did a bit more research on it, because I thought maybe my kids are crazy, should I go and check this out? And I have checked it out and it's not my kid, it's Gen Zers, it's millennials. These are things that are happening. So 70% of Gen Zers now say that they prefer to watch content with the captions on. 53% of millennials said they prefer to watch it with captions turned on. Now, when I'm watching these, I'm watching it with a a little bit of curiosity because in the context of of my teaching, as I said, um, I I don't have too much of a problem with it because it's a a point of equity um, for students who might have a bit of trouble hearing or whatever. But some of the words that they've got, are wrong. <laughs> so, so the words so, that are out there, you're looking at it thinking, no, they've completely balls that up. That's right. So there's a few things there. Actually, I'll go back a little bit. There are three things that we're referring to here which people often throw together. There are subtitles, there are closed captions, and there are open captions. Right. So a subtitle is typically just the words without the sound. So sometimes you hear a gunshot mm. and you'll see it come up on captioning, gunshot. So And subtitles, I'm guessing, are usually put in by the producers of the video. Subtitles are put in there and they're part of the video. They're, they're permanent there. Yeah, yeah. So they're part of it. And often they're used with foreign language, for example. Mm. They're subtitles. Or if you just saw the words coming up on there with no reference to anything else and you had no choice, that was a subtitle. Closed captions are designed that you can turn on and off. Again, when my kids picked up the remote and turned it on, they're closed captions. But closed captions are designed for people that have trouble hearing. So they actually put some sounds, description of some sounds on there to make it easier for that person to understand. So if they're seeing something happen on screen and there is a siren that goes past and everyone looks over to the siren, if we can hear that, it makes sense. But if you can't, people are going, well, why do they just all turn that way? So there was, there was a funny funny reference to a Stranger Things um, sound that was made. <laughs> was that's right. There's, there's Sometimes they'll try and bring in a bit of humour. So they had squelching wetly was one of the descriptions they put there. So someone that was hard of hearing and watching that, they would understand that squelching wetly. Yep, I understand that one. So there are things like that where they're trying to make it more interesting in those captions. And uh, and so they're the sort of thing. So captions are ones you can turn on and off, but they're designed for people that are hard of hearing. Open captions is the same, but it's on permanently. So you don't have a choice of turning it on and off. So they're the three things. Most people use captions and subtitles basically in interchangeable, if you like. Mm. So this is what's happening where people are doing it. And again, it's a maybe multitasking. It's being able to catch all the words. Sometimes you'll have someone on screen that's got an accent or they'll say something quickly or they'll mumble a little bit. And so having those captions on makes it a bit easier to capture all the dialogue. What I found when my kids want to watch this movie, and so I've watched a few since then, what I found is that it took away the acting from the actors because sometimes an actor will pause for dramatic effect. But subtitles don't give you that subtlety. Subtitles mm. come up with all the words and you say, why did the actor pause there? I, I can read what's going on there. I knew what was happening there. It might be, and the murderer is, but you've already read it on screen, so you know who the murderer is. <laughs> so it takes away some of that subtlety. And then exactly as you said, distracting, I found it that I was reading the words on the screen and I wasn't watching... Watching the action that was happening. All this hard work these actors have put into getting their facial expression right and acting and doing all that just spells disappointment for me. 
<laughs> it does. Now, the other part is you talked about the reason they get it wrong. Let's just go back briefly history-wise. 1979 in the UK, BBC was the first one across the world that put captions in as part of the transmission of a TV program. And that was pre-recorded. So, again, a producer would put it in there and presumably had the ability to turn it on and off, which I'll get to in a moment. In 1980, it started in the US, 1982 in, in Australia. But to get access to those, you had to buy a decoder. And a decoder, in today's terms, was about $1,300. Mm. So you didn't just say, oh, I want to just multitask while I'm watching something, I'll turn it on. You'd normally had a problem with hearing before you go and spend the money on a decoder. Normally, it started off with just the pre-recorded imagery, so you had the, the captions coming up on that decoder. But then they got to the stage where they thought, well, people can't catch up with the news. Let's put live captioning on the news. They hired people that could type at really 225 fast. words per minute. That wow. was the minimum speed you had to be able to type. And then you could come along and you'd sit there and your job would be listen to the news and type away as you were hearing things. And they're pretty accurate. So when you see things come up on screen that are wrong – they're not done by those people. What the ones you see being done wrong are typically where they take a script, they turn that into a bit of certain type of text with time codes on it, and then they upload that against the video. Now, an actor may get their words wrong sometimes. A director directing a TV show or a movie might be really pedantic about the actor getting all the words perfect out of the script, or they might be quite comfortable. If everything's flowing nicely and the actor said a few words that are just plain wrong, but it still has the same intent, that's okay, I'll leave it go. But they don't change the script. So then when they upload the text file for the captioning, that's when you read things sometimes and you go, hold on, they didn't say that. See, yeah, I've got a problem with it because sometimes when we're watching like a video, and there are always videos about science, right? And five-minute little grabs just to support what I'm teaching. Um, but they've got quite technical language, and it's like it's been typed by someone who's got no idea about what it is they're talking about. So the person's had a guess at what the word was and got it completely wrong. So those ones are done by AI. Yeah, that's so what I So you don't have the 225 words per minute typing anymore. <laughs> Some of the ones that are captioned. So if it's a movie or a TV show, if it's a script, that's easy because you just take the script and say you add some time codes to it. There's a certain type of file that just gets uploaded. That's easy. I've done it mm. with videos that I've done myself. So yeah, it's right. all very easy. When you have something like that where it's a documentary where someone's just doing things that's not acting as such or it might be a live show, then they just use AI. And that's when you see some of those ones on TV where it is the news. There's no one typing anymore. Mm. It's just AI taking that. And you do see ones that are hilarious then yeah. because <laughs> you see words coming up and you go, there's nothing like what it was. But AI heard bits in the vocabulary, in inverted commas, of the AI, it didn't have that scientific word, for example, but it had some other words that sounded a bit like that. So they're the ones that get inserted in there, mm. and that's what you end up with. So not perfect, but it is an interesting process about this captioning being a part of everyday life now. And again, that 70% for Gen Zers, as we go through and those Gen Zers get older, it's going to be more and more standard. The really tricky part is when you go to the movies. And I said that to my kids after we watched a few shows. <laughs> I said, so, Who wants to go to see a movie on the big screen? No, you can't have closed captions. That's right. So what do you do then? Oh, really? They, they, they didn't really. Oh, goodness. You can me. do it. You okay. can actually go to the movies and you can get a device that you sit in front of you that will give you the words that are being spoken on the screen. So you can watch the screen and then look down at the device. Because <laughs> I, I started thinking, how would you do it? Would you have to put glasses on and they'd have some other type of 
word imagery coming up on the screen, but no, you do it on a little device sitting in front of you. So they're working on that because, again, there are people hard of hearing who want to go to the mm. movies. Mm. So they're working on solutions there, but I think they'll be working on it for other people then who just want to go along and have captions on. And just to throw one more little in there, smartphones now have got live captions because I did joke with my kids and say, <laughs> well, how's this conversation going with you and I? Can you handle that? Yeah, yeah, we've heard you enough, Dad, but we can also turn live captions on our phone. So you could actually turn live captions on on your phone oh, and wow. sit that there and watch. You and I are having a conversation and watch the words being translated on the phone as we have a conversation. Now, that might be great wow. if you're in a FaceTime video or doing some sort of video conference call and there's a guy from another country there and you can't quite understand him, so you let AI try and guess the words rather than you guess the words. But, yeah, live captioning, how long before we walk around with our Google glasses on, we've talked about previously, just mm. having the live captions come up on there. Just in conversation, recording all the conversations. And, and, and seeing the words the there. <laughs> so keep an eye for that. If you haven't tried captioning, if you're someone like James and I that are a little bit older than Gen Z, then if you haven't tried captioning on that next TV show you're watching, then give it a go. I don't love it, but I can also see the point that you just do not miss anything there with captions on. podcast, we try not to become too much of an infomercial, but Matt, this story has all the hallmarks of a noisy late night telly shopping channel. Brace yourselves for this intro, folks. <clears throat> Are you struggling for a good night's sleep? Would you give your left arm just to shed some of the workday stress? Well, this is a must-have gadget to ease your, ease your back into a restful eight hours of luxurious deep sleep once again. Just listen to what Matthew has to say about this tech. It's always a New Zealander who's doing the commentary. I'm fascinated by the New Zealander in there. I was trying to quickly think, is this a New Zealand product that we're looking at here? <laughs> no, no, those, I don't know. Maybe I've watched too many infomercials, but they always seem to have that guy with um, a, a thick New a Zealand Kiwi accent. accent. Yeah, I'm not sure why. Okay, but apologies to all our Kiwi friends um, out there listening, um, and I hope that wasn't too insulting. I thought there was a compliment to them saying they're involved in all these there commercials. <laughs> so smart goggles, this is the thing now. Smart goggles you can get, and they're backed by... People like Daniel Craig, James Bond, backed by JZ. These are, or JZ, sorry, because it's American. This is an infomercial right now. Yes, it keep is, going. Yeah, <laughs> and backed by these famous people, which again, they often use that to get some sort of credibility. The concept here is that you put your smart goggles on to sleep with, to relax with, and it blocks out light. That's fine. There's lots of other eye shades you can put on that do that. And then they start massaging your eyes and your temples. One thing I thought was really cool. Wow was that they listen for your heartbeat, your heart rate, and then they just start putting a slow rhythm through that's just below your heart rate so that oh, it's trying slow to it slow it down, that's right, to get your body to wow. get in sync with those. I don't know if it goes so slow that it finally gets to the stage where you're not pumping fast enough to get blood around your body, but <laughs> it slows you down and puts you into this nice relaxed state. 15 minutes of this and it sounds like Next pure heaven. Galapagos tortoise. Oh, absolutely One right. <laughs> every two minutes or something. That's right. And then you're ready to go to sleep, <laughs> maybe permanently if it's that slow. But they've also been using them to do the opposite. And it does sound like pseudoscience, doesn't it? When you've got a product that can do everything, it can relax you and also excite you. Yeah, right. Mm, a bit worried about that. But the Manchester City Football Club has been trialling these devices. And what they do is they put them on and do that relaxation I've just talked about. But then, as they're getting ready to run out on the pitch and run around and play their game, that's when it starts increasing the tempo, increasing the rhythm to start to get you 
more agitated, more awake, more ready to go. Wow. And then you're ready to jump out in the football pitch and you're going to be a champion straight away. I don't know if the Manchester City Football Club has been getting better results as a result of this trial, but I'm sure they'll be working on that and trying to get through and, and see whether there's any use to them. I don't have any scientific evidence to say that this does something for your body scientifically. But if you try them out and you're relaxed and it sounds and feels good, then what the heck? It's one of those things, I think, that we are discovering different things about our body, so let people come along and try our gadgets and see if they're any good. So there's a gadget out there that, that anecdotally gives us um, this effect, and it's up to the scientists, I guess, to bring any proof or uh, disproof to it. I using up, that word, proof. Up, up to the scientists, but also up to the manufacturers to actually go and get some real science done mm. on it. And some of the things with this, if you think this is going to cure cancer, yeah, don't go and get it. But if you maybe just want to feel relaxed, and if you feel good, go into somewhere you can get these and try it out. And if you feel good, what the heck, do it. And that's kind of my general advice with mm. some of these pseudoscience things. If you're, if you're expecting it to cure a real disease, then go with the real doctors, real scientists. But if you just feel like you want to be relaxed and it feels good for you, then knock yourself out. Yeah, excellent advice. EV tech has moved pretty quickly over the past decade, so it's a big call to suggest that one particular maker might come up with a real game changer. But BMW, tired of other makers stealing the headlines, has come up with a biggie, folks. Matt, what is it that's going to give the Beamer drivers the upper hand? Now, BMW has said there's one thing holding back the whole EV revolution, and they believe it's range. Range anxiety. Yeah. Mm. It's one of the things that I hear about. I don't know it's the thing, but they're convinced. You need cars out there with a 1,000 kilometres of range, and once you get that, the EV revolution will take off. Mm. Now, it is taking off in some countries already, as we know. We've just talked about it before, and they didn't have over a 1,000 kilometres of range, but that's the story from BMW. Now, you've got some cars at the moment that have some pretty good range. The Lucid Air Cream has 836 kilometres. The Tesla Model S. That's great. That's fantastic. The Tesla Model S, 650 kilometres. So that's all well and good, but BMW have now got new batteries. And BMW haven't been at the forefront of the EV revolution. They're doing a bit of catch-up. Maybe they'll catch up with this sort of technology. Maybe their whole thing about you need a 1,000 kilometres of range is trying to put people off buying other cars until BMW get this particular model. But they've got new batteries that can deliver 30% more range than current batteries and 20% lighter. So that gives you a bit of a double bonus wow. because obviously you've got to move that mass around. That reduces the range. You go and put a bigger battery and obviously there's more mass, so there's more that you've got to move around. So it's not always you don't get all the benefit of that extra battery power. So having those two combined, they've now got a car, a BMW car that's driving around Europe showing this off that does have more than 1,000 kilometres on one charge. The other part they're doing, and again, they're probably a little bit behind on this, is that they've got the ability to charge faster. In the past, BMW electric vehicles have only been able to accept a 200 kilowatt charge. So they've been able to charge as fast. Other companies out there, Porsche, Hyundai, for example, they can charge at 350 kilowatts, which again mm. means you can charge faster. Again, this battery is at that 350 kilowatts. So longer range, lighter, and charging as fast as at least the other competitors all sounds like a pretty good combination. Yeah. Yeah. So again, not quite available to purchase yet. In a test vehicle, so it's not a concept car. We did talk about a Mercedes-Benz concept car, and that was literally a concept car. This is a real car out there in the real world being driven around. If 
I suppose they get to the point where they can produce it cheaply enough, can produce enough quantity, and they feel like the public wants it, this will be a car you'll be able to buy within maybe two years. Yeah, wow. That's exciting stuff. I've got to say, that's a game changer. Software technology to fit someone's face onto someone else's body in a video has been around for a while now, and the bumps are now so finely smoothed out that only the most savvy can spot a fake. That's both very cool and alarming. Well, at least you can't do the same thing with someone's voice, because all the nuances that go with someone's voice would be impossible to transpose, wouldn't it, Matt? Am I right? James, let me play you this little bit of voice from a new guest we've got on our show. For your glimpse into the future and all the latest technology information, tune in to the highly rated podcast Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson and James Eddy. Available on all popular podcasting apps. So, do you know who that was? I have got no idea who that is. That was me. (laughs) What? That's what we've got now. We've got (laughs) AI voice filters. For people that want to play with this stuff, there are two sites in particular that I found this on. Co-Recast. K-O-E Recast is one site. The other one's voice.ai. Go and have a play with those. All I did for that was I just recorded my voice on one of those sites and then I said, change my voice. And that's what you heard back then. So can you change your voice and select, oh, I'd like it to sound like a 30-year-old woman or I'd like to sound like a 10-year-old boy or something like that? Can you do... So there's a few things here. One particular site will let you just choose from male or female, older person, younger person, maybe accented voice. So you've got about 10 to choose from. So you can take your voice and turn it into someone else's voice. So forget about the old days of putting a handkerchief over the phone when you're ringing up to make those threats to someone that you don't like. <laughs> Sorry. Now. You've just, you've just uh, honed the, the prank call market. That's right. All right, okay. I'm not recommending this, James, but <laughs> now you can just use your own voice but change it into someone else's voice. But some of the sites allow you to take enough audio content from someone's voice. So you could take 10 minutes of your voice, for example, and then use someone else's voice and turn it into your voice or vice versa. So I want to sound like Morgan Freeman. You take a movie, you go and put about 10 minutes of Morgan Freeman's voice into one of these sites, and then you just go and talk. Whatever you want to say, you want to say, You can talk about Andy Dufresne as long as you want. (laughs) That's right. You can talk and say, I just want to tell you all out there that James Eddy is the greatest guy ever. And then you do the conversion, which takes all of a few seconds, and then it's Morgan Freeman saying that. Wow. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? Sounds scary. (laughs) Sounds incredible. Now, I know there are some podcasts out there where people say, we've got AI on our podcast. You can actually create a podcast that has you interviewing you, but with someone else's voice doing it. So I, I've got the so question. So I'm obsolete in about a week or two's time. Is that what you're telling me? Well, are you actually here now <laughs> for all this time? Have I had James Eddy sitting beside me or is James Eddy just yeah, me nice. or am I James Eddy? It's all too know. confusing. I don't even know. Oh, no. <laughs> but the, I think the We're big thing the here Matrix is... We're anyway, aren't we? We are, that's right. Okay. It is scary 
what's the practical purpose of this? I have no idea. It sounds like the only reason Other you have stitching this, people up, I can see. That's right. So uh, gone are the days where, oh, look, you haven't got video evidence, uh, you know, or, or we have video evidence of you now saying this in front of the camera and it wasn't your face and it wasn't your voice. I know. So how can... But it's wh- now your face and voice and, oh. What are the good uses? That's what I'm struggling with yeah. here. I can only no, b- see this being used only for... Only used for evil. That's right. For bad actors to use it or... Maybe call centres to make it sound a bit more like a voice that you're familiar with. So if you're doing calls into Texas, you might get someone that has a Texan voice, a Texan accent, record their voice while, and then every call centre comes through. And it's not quite live, real-time yet. The conversions that I did, I took about a 20-second clip, and it was taking, I don't know, three or four seconds, but surely that's going to get better as time goes on. So Mm. maybe you could literally have a conversation with someone, and what they were hearing was a version of the voice that they were more familiar with rather than your voice. So all those dumb or terrible things that Donald Trump was saying over those years, he could then go back and say, well, it wasn't me. That's right. I never said that. That was all deep fake technology for the video and any audio you heard was someone else. If it was like a George W. Bush type president, they could get someone else doing all the face and voice stuff and he could just be there. And he could actually sound intelligent. Is that what you're saying? Mm. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so it is It is fascinating. But go and look at those two sites. I played with them. One of them you had to register for and you've got to wait for registration. The other one you can just start using. But I, I was just blown away by how good it was. I actually played it first of all to my wife and I said, oh, listen to this. It, you know who that is? I just I can't recognise the voice. And she listened to it a couple of times and went, no, no idea. So she couldn't pick my voice after going through that translator. I've got to tell you, Matt, this stuff terrifies me. <laughs> Terrifies me. <laughs> and I suppose one of the reasons... I don't want to see my face with a different voice coming out of it. Well, that's another thing they could do. Absolutely mm. right. And I suppose one of the reasons I talk about this is that it's happening. Whether we like it or not, yeah. whether we think it's going to be used for good or bad, the reality is it's happening. It's happening now. You can use it right now. Just being aware, if our listeners are at least aware of what's available out there, they might be a bit more knowledgeable. <laughs> We've talked about the wonderful practicality of tracking tiles a number of times here on Tech Talk. They'll help you find lost bags, locate your car somewhere in the infinite car park at Westfield, and you can even catch criminals with them. But they're not completely universal. There are some places that there's no pocket to pop them in, or for one-way tracking perhaps, like an outgoing parcel, a tile is a bit expensive to just give away. Thank you, technology gods, for the miracle of the QR code. Matt, Simple Solutions for Modern Day Problems 101, right here. Yeah, and I'm not convinced this will actually work. I'm happy to talk okay. about it. I'm happy okay. to, to explore it, but I'm not so convinced. We're delivering fake news, is that right? Well, no, no, it's real news, but I don't think it will take off. Okay. The idea here is, as you said before, or just then, Bluetooth trackers, yes, they're a bit larger, a bit more expensive. You need to have something large enough to put them on, your keys, for example, put them in a bag for tracking. And then you can track them with your phone using technology and some other person's phone can be nearby. But there are things that are small. So, for example, textbooks, a kid's textbooks. Are you going to go mm. and put a Bluetooth tracker on every one of those? Probably not practical. You know we need to do that at school. Oh, we lose so many textbooks. It's well, well this, uh, maybe I'm wrong. This might be a, a great idea. Uh, things like a case for your glasses, maybe putting your glasses in a case, and then maybe that's just a bit too small to put a Bluetooth tracker on. So the idea here is that Tile, and Tile, I'm a big fan of Tile, the brand, because they were the first ones that I actually had in Bluetooth trackers, 
they've got a bit of a problem in the market now because Apple have got their AirTags and they've just got more iPhones and iPads out there than Tile has got apps out there running. So they've got a bit of an advantage. But they've come up with a solution where they believe that humans are nice enough and care enough that they'll do this. And that's where I think this will fall down. <laughs> You've got a QR code. You buy a, a sticker batch. So you get, say, 15 stickers on a sheet and they've got QR codes on them. You stick that on things. So it's a little sticker. So you can stick that on things that are very small, as say a textbook, for example, stick it on a glasses case, an earbud case, things that are very small. You can stick it on probably not your kids. You probably, <laughs> no, you probably could Never stick know. it on your kids. but Yeah, you're in a big crowd. That's right. Stick one on your kids. Just get it tattooed on your kids right. instead. But then if someone finds that, so, oh, here's a textbook dropped on the ground down the main street. I wonder who owns this. Open it up, can't find the person's name on there, can't find their phone number. Might have the name, for example, maybe not a phone number. There's a QR code. Do you wonder what happens here? You scan the QR code. That then gives you the person's name, their phone number, and a message. Hi, thanks for finding my textbook. This is really important to me. Please give me a call. There's my number. Tell you what. Back in 1993, I left my Keaton and Gould Biology 1 textbook on a bus and I've always regretted it since. How much did it cost you to replace it? Oh, it was about 80 bucks. Oh, oh that you hurts. That sort of money as a student. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> I'm not convinced. So if someone finds something, I mean, first of all, the great thing about... Some people hand in wallets. They do. The great thing about Bluetooth trackers is that you're not relying on the person that finds it mm. to do something because sometimes the person that finds it is the person who stole it. Yeah. So that's the first part. But then someone finds a textbook, yeah, you're right, they might be bothered to go down to the police station and hand it in, or they must go, oh, someone's lost that, I'll leave it here, maybe mm, they'll come yeah. back. Are they going to scan the QR code and then ring that person and say, hi, James, I know your name now because I've got your details here, I found your textbook, here it is, come and pick it up, which then exposes another potential issue that you're basically putting your name and phone number out there mm. on a bunch of stuff that someone could find somewhere. Could it be that someone scans the QR code and it just sends a message straight to the to the person who's the owner, who's got the the, the, the license on the app or whatever, and the person doesn't even have to ring. It's just something that happens automatically. And then says, oh, your textbook has just I've been found at this location. got an idea for people who develop QR codes out there, by the way. Yeah, well, that's, that sounds like a, <laughs> maybe it's a valid idea. So, and so it was last spotted in this point here. That's right. And on then a if bus that person headed out to... King Henry Hospital or whatever. Yeah, I don't mind that. I actually think that idea is better than the, the idea Tyler I've got. But it would rely on that person scanning it and yeah. then just leaving it there. Yeah. So, yep, I found this, so they know where it on is. On the bus that's driving all around Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. But maybe it would be a message would come up when they scanned it to say, please leave this where you found it. I now know where it is. So a message goes to that person. Yeah, why not? Yeah. That sounds better to me because I just don't think people are going to be that comfortable putting all their details out there for mm. a start. And then I don't think people are going to be bothered to scan that to then ring them and say, here it is, I'll leave it here or come pick it up from me. Am I inviting a stalker or a crazy person to my place? And oh, I don't like all of that. So is it going to work? I, I'm i happy to be proven wrong, but I'm not convinced this is going to be a real goer. Well, I'm I'm all for tattooing kids when they go to the Royal Easter show. <laughs> I think that's got more merit because when you find a kid, then you might be more inclined to say, let's yeah, find your owners. Still, I'm just going to scan your forehead. That's right. <laughs> I was actually thinking about a more subtle location like the back of the neck. No, no, it's got to be obvious. Yeah, right, that's fine. <laughs> I can live with that. Well, it's got your name there as well. I think it should be compulsory because there's so many people you meet on a day-to-day basis but you haven't seen them for a long time and you think, g'day. Oh, yeah, hang on. <laughs> just got to pull my phone out. That's right. <laughs> scan the QR code. Oh, Jimmy. No, but if they had their name underneath the QR code, yeah, I'd okay. be happy with that. All right. <laughs> and on that note, 
I'm going to go and stick a uh, sticky QR label on this episode and pack it off as into the ether. When you pick it up and scan it, uh, it'll take you to a website and it says, uh, we are done with another tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. And there'll be a cat playing a piano or something. We'll have that for effect. Nice work, Matt. Congratulations on another cracking tech talk. We don't have enough cats, you know. There's lots of cats on YouTube, but we don't see enough cats in the podcasting world. We've no, got to introduce right. more cats. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a cat to have their voice recorded or their meows recorded and then say something and see if I can get it coming out in cat language. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Look, and thank you for tuning in, folks. I'm James Eddy, and I'm here to say that this is really me with my real voice and my real face and not some AI imposter, although that's precisely what you expect the fake James Eddy to say, isn't it? Only the true James Eddy would deny the existence of the James Eddy, or maybe only the false James Eddy would say that it's not the false James Eddy. I don't Eddie. know who to believe it's, anymore. It sounds like a Life of Brian <laughs> thing, doesn't it? Listen, I am not the Messiah, you understand? Honestly! Only the true Messiah denies his divinity. What? Well, what sort of chance does that give me? All right, I am the Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) And we're caught in a loop. We we hope you'll all be back next week where AI could possibly be impersonating both Matt and I, feeding you with who knows what of the latest of the world in high-tech gadgetry. See you then, or not. (laughs) 